You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Well, we are really pleased to uh, introduce our guest for today. Uh, we have the one and only Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney, uh, who is the Right Reverend Samuel B. Hulsey Professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. She's the author of multiple books, which includes Womanist Midrash, A Reintroduction to Women of the Torah and the Throne, Daughters of Miriam, Women Prophets in Ancient Israel, and co-editor of The People's Bible and The People's Companion to the Bible. She's also the author of A Woman's Lectionary for the Whole Church and translator of its biblical selections. And so we're just so grateful um, that you could join us today. Welcome to Inverse Podcast. Thank you so much. And hello, everyone. Enthusiastic bunch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, People are very excited. Um, For uh, Your scholarship has been very important to uh, a lot of people in our community and um, life-giving and liberative. So um, uh, you're amongst friends and and fans. um, So thanks for giving up your time. We wanted to provide a little bit of time at the start uh, for you to talk about this new project that's just come out, uh, a women's lectionary for the whole church and uh, to just sketch a little bit and um, uh, what this project has been for you and uh, is now that it's released out into the world. Well, this project and on Facebook uh, with wine and wine, uh, I was preparing to preach and all the lessons in the Revised Common Lectionary and in the Episcopal Lectionary. So I was whining about it on Facebook and uh, one of my friends made the pun, well, if you're gonna whine, have some wine. Uh, And someone else said, well, why don't you just write a lectionary? I was writing a grant proposal for my then upcoming sabbatical and that proposal wasn't coming together. It read exactly like what it was, a desperate bid for somebody to give me enough money so I could take the full year off, which is not what a grant agency <laughs> wants to hear. Um, and so I started tinkering with the idea of a lectionary and threw that grant proposal out straight away. And this project developed from that with the organizing question, what would it look like if we told the stories of the scriptures from the female characters. And I have done a version of this in most of my presentations and in my teaching, helping people think about who's not included. And the example I use most often is the rubric, God is the God of Abraham. And then everybody in the room says, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then I say, but put the women's names in and you know, eyes go crossed. And um, so you might get someone who says Sarah, uh, if you, you have womanists, they're gonna say Hagar, but very few are gonna remember Abraham's wife, uh, Keturah. And then uh, you may get uh, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, but most will uh, omit the enslaved women, Bilha, Vazilpa. So then you get the question, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but is the God of 
Hagar, Sarah, Keturah, uh, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Bilha, Razilpa. Well, some of those women were enslaved and uh, raped into pregnancies for other people, uh, for people in the name of that God. So they might not actually say, that's my God. So how do we then tell the story about who God is and what God is doing through this uh, sanctu- uh, family that has been named sacred? As uh, soon as we put the women on the page, it's a completely different story. But it also looks like the stories we know with uh, multiple marriage partners, usually in sequence, not at the same time, children by different parents, blended families, step parents, uh, family strife. Uh, it starts to look much less like the rarefied chronicle of some saints, but our own uh, messy human relations. So that principle, let's organize the lessons around women. Um, Let's just build a completely new lectionary from the ground up. I do what I call gender expansive translation that I started doing back with Daughters of Miriam. I wasn't using that language, but if the text said Israelites, I'd say the women, children, and men of Israel. And it would ring differently when you had a text like God said, destroy the Canaanites. God said, destroy the women, children, and men of Canaan. That gets a little, it hits a little different when they're not just generic Canaanites, but then you start talking about babies. So I do expanded gender expansive translation that also includes things like naming characters in terms of their uh, matrilineal identity. So if Jesus is the son of David uh, because of a set of theological claims about enduring monarchy, then Jesus is also the son of Bathsheba. And if we take that seriously, Jesus kept saying, I'm not the son of David the way you think I am. I'm not mm-hmm. doing that kind of kingdom thing. I'm ju- I, that's not what I'm doing. But what Jesus did was son of Bathsheba stuff, like sat with broken women and went to places where people were considered scandalous and sexually inappropriate. So when we talk about Jesus as the son of Bathsheba, we are a little bit closer to him than when we're pounding our chest and saying he's the son of David. So the language in the, in the translations would be uh, Jesus, son of David and son of Bathsheba. And I would maybe put that in brackets or something. And then in the text commentary, I would let people know when I added the language in like Rachel born Benjamin. So expansive translation in the Psalms I use exclusively feminine God language whenever uh, there's a gendered pronoun. So people have the experience of reading and praying the Psalms uh, to God in a feminine register, if you will. Um, and then there are a number of translation tr- choices that I uh, lay out in the beginning of the lectionaries, including not using Lord because it's hierarchical and patriarchal and curiarchal and all that stuff. And my decision to use slave rather than servant, because of course these people were not servants, they were not really being paid. They had no uh, control over their reproduction or their children. They could be mutilated, sold, have their children sold out from under them. So this is not servitude, let's just call it slavery. And then we have to wrestle with with the ever blessed Virgin Mary, uh, whose lessons we'll read today, um, saying things, I am the womb slave of God. Now, sometimes the Apostle Paul refers to himself as the slave of God and translators leave that. But uh, 
in the West and West-derived cultures, we're a little twitchy about enslavement because uh, some folk have really not owned up to their share of it. Right. And other folk, quite frankly, uh, don't want to be part of a religious legacy in which the language of slavery is used so loosely and normatively. And that includes yeah. some of my Black readers who are not real happy about it. Uh, yeah. But I said, yeah, but this is what the text says. And, you know, Jesus and I have had a long standing fight. Um, you said, she who the sun sets free is free indeed, but you didn't free no damn by it, right? Jesus never disrupted slavery. He used the rhetoric of slavery normatively as though it was going to endure forever. And when one soul escaped, escaped slavery through death, Jesus raised the child up and gave him back to his enslaver. Like, I have a whole lot of issues around that. Uh, because even if he was a good enslaver and a benign enslaver and was not sexually abusing him, he was still in bondage, but he was free in death. So keeping slavery on the page means we've got to do a lot of work with the text. So those are some broad strokes about what this project is. It goes uh, a traditional three-year cycle, ABC, that's the yellow copy, and then the orange cover is Year W, which is a single volume lectionary that goes through all four gospels for a, a church that's not in the lectionary cycle or someone wants to preach a year through a year of women, uh, but wants to hit all of the gospels. Because you know, if you do A, you're basically gonna just get Matthew and that might be unbalanced if you're only gonna do a one year commitment. So uh, the lectionary goes through all 52 Sundays, all of the principal feasts of the Episcopal church, I added uh, my two favorite saints days, uh, the Feast of the Blessed Virgin and the Feast of Mary Magdalene, um, Holy Week, uh, Easter Week, yeah, all those kind of things. I'll say one more thing about the Easter lessons. For those of you who experience a great vigil of Easter, the church reads what feels like half the entire scripture, right? They tell the stories <laughs> of salvation. And in fact, in the Book of Common Prayer, the introduction is, now let us tell the stories of salvation. They start with Genesis, and they go through all the great dudes who rescued somebody from somebody, and God saves people through David and Daniel and Samson, and so it's all of these saving, like, there are female saving texts, so uh, we go through uh, God saving Hagar, we go through Deborah saving the people, we go through Judith saving the people, we go through uh, the enslaved woman, Yehosheba, saving the young king, uh, Joash. So that entire cycle of readings fulfills the ancient liturgical goal, which is to tell the stories of salvation. We're just telling a different set of stories. Yeah, no, that's so, good. That's yeah. good. You know, well, I, I, think, I think we can just do the altar call now, right, Drew? Like that. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> you know, I didn't grow up in a church initially that used um, any kind of liturgical, well, everything was liturgical, right? But but yeah. certainly not using the lectionary. Um, so it's only been in the past few years that I've kind of gotten accustomed to it. And, and so it's interesting, like at my church, um, I'll do some pulpit filling and stuff. And so, you know, ask to follow the lecture. And I always find it quite random sometimes, right? What is chosen, what's not. And so, and it's not random, um, but it's it's all the different political biases, right? And so I think this text um, and this resource is just so powerful in that it in many ways is in its intentionality is speaking back to the way that we've, mm -hmm 
um, canonized certain texts and ignored figures, texts um, in, in ways that really form us, right, and shape how we think about our faith. So that's really helpful. But I want to bring, you mentioned Judith, um, and, and then we always ground our um, conversations, inviting um, our guests to read uh, a scriptural passage. And so could you read your scriptural passage for us um, that can ground some of our conversation as we move forward? Certainly. So this is from Judith chapter 13, uh, and it begins at verse 18 and runs to uh, verse 20. Uzziah, who was the town magistrate, said to Judith, O daughter, you are blessed by the most high God above all other women on earth. And blessed be the holy God who created the heavens and the earth, who has guided you to cut off the head of the leader of our enemies. Praise of you will never depart from the hearts of women and men who remember the power of God. May God do these things for you as an eternal exaltation. And may God visit you with blessings because you did not withhold your life when our nation was humiliated. Rather, you rallied against our demise, walking straight before our God. And all the people said, amen, amen. Um, for, for those who reached for uh, the Tanakh or the um, uh, Christian scriptures and found themselves flicking through looking for Judith, we'll return to um, that, particularly for Protestants who might be scratching their heads. But we, we want to start um, with um, biography as theology. And uh, Dr. Gaffney, we'd love to hear um, uh, when do you first remember encountering the Bible? I don't know that I ever not knew it. Um, hmm. uh, my mother was very religious. I'm sure I had children's Bibles. My youngest memories outside of a particular trauma that I'll circle back to, my youngest memories were Sunday school um, and uh, me being baptized with my brother and he was maybe barely one, so I was maybe barely five. But the, the trauma is, I remember actually Dr. King's funeral on TV. And mm, wow. for most of my younger life, I thought I was there. It was only later as a teen seeing the footage and realizing it was familiar footage that I had been so immersed in it that I thought that wow. was a funeral of like one of my uncles or somebody that I went to. But so that, um, and uh, I was barely two when that happened. So that's really my first memory. But outside of that, I just remember being in church. So I'm, I'm really interested in, um, as you're thinking about these early, early encounters and as you kind of grew up, like, how were you experiencing encountering scriptures? Um, were they presented and were you encountering them as uh, liberative, as oppressive, as something messier than that. I'm curious about um, your encounters with scripture. I remember my first Sunday school teacher, I remember liking her a lot as a little girl and having appreciation for her uh, as an older girl uh, growing into a woman. Because I remember um, that she was very uh, insistent that we know what we believe. And it never felt particularly dogmatic. It was definitely stories and story time. Uh, she may have been a literalist. That didn't come, up, come across. But she really wanted us to know what was happening in these stories. Uh, and she also wanted us to know something about the church and its organization. And so later I learned she was a professional educator. My parents were teachers. And 
she was a girlfriend of my mother. So she was someone who was thoughtful about Christian education. And I could tell that, um, didn't have the, the language for it. You know, uh, sun, uh, we were in church Sundays in the summers when we went uh, to the country where my mother is from, uh, rural North Carolina, we were in church all day. Um, as little kids, we knew to behave in church. Uh, if you're really little, you could color in church, but you grew out of that. You could always go to sleep in church because they'd rather you sleep than cut up. Um, but so I just remember hearing it and uh, not having any particular sense. It just it was just sort of the, the fabric of my life. Um, I do know that uh, most of those churches there were male pastors and maybe in the church I was baptized, there might've been a woman on staff. I'm really not sure when I saw the first woman in ministry, but I didn't know that there were people who didn't believe that women could be pastors. For me, it was like finding out people think the earth is flat. I didn't mm -hmm. know until I went to seminary that there huh. were people who believed that. Um, by then, uh, I was in a church and, and I was ordained first in the AME Zion Church, which the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, uh, similar to the African Methodist Episcopal Church, but different founding stories in different cities. Uh, but also the AME Zions ordained women um, in the 1800s and gave women full ordination to priestly orders. Uh, and the AME famously did not, they talk about Jorana Lee, but they refused to ordain her. And then they ordained her after she died, like a hundred years later, posthumously. Yep. But so I didn't know this. And when I encountered it, I was incredulous. I was also not very pastoral. I didn't appreciate how deeply people were tied to their, to their congregations of faith. And I was like, well, why don't you leave? There's all these other churches. I, like, I really, I did not get this phenomenon. And when people would ask me to prove it in scripture, in, to some, in some regard, this is where Daughters of Miriam came from. I said, there's women prophets in the Bible. Prophets preach. Like, why are we even having this conversation? Like, I was not trying to wrestle with Timothy or whatever his business was. I could care less. Women were the witnesses of the resurrection. Like, why are we having this conversation? Water is wet. And I, I really was befuddled that people were just invested in this nonsense. So clearly, however I was exposed to scripture, however much I retained or didn't retain, I was not in a, um, in a context that railed against women in ministry. Even if that was what some people believed, I just never heard or experienced that. Uh, and so the scriptures were always uh, very rich to me, very rich narratives, very interesting reading. Uh, but it wasn't until I read Elizabeth Schuessler Fiorenza on my own, not in mm. seminary, this is before seminary, and I read her book in memory of her. And that mm. simple question, uh, Jesus said, uh, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And they didn't even bother to write the sister's name down. Like that's mm. not what Jesus said. And then we all do our communion rituals, but we cut out that part, even though mm. Jesus tied them together and said, you to do this, proclaim this in memory of her. And so then I began to see um, patriarchal lenses in the biblical text and in how the biblical text is handled, hmm. what lessons are presented and what lessons are not presented. So that was very foundational for me. Hmm. 
Dr. Gaffney, um, I'm just looking around who's joining us live and can see that um, our dear sister, Carol Unga, um, who has gotten up in Kenya at 3.30 in the morning. Just to give you a sense of um, how much our larger community appreciates you, uh, people are literally fasting from sleep to, to be a part of this live, even though it, it will go out uh, on the podcast for everybody to listen to. And part of that is because um, uh, as a community, we do hunger for uh, readings that turn our world upside down instead of readings that prop the world up as it is. Um, your Womanist Midrash has been so helpful for so many of us in, in doing just that, uh, uh, inclusive, inviting invitation into a particular tradition of liberation. Uh, we're wondering if you would um, uh, help uh, help share that gift of, of your hermeneutic for others who are seeking to um, uh, struggle with the scriptures in such ways that we do walk differently. You know, I don't know about this gift language. These may not be welcome gifts. <laughs> but the, the first engagement, I'll call it, the first engagement that I want readers to have and take seriously is that the biblical text in their hands or on their screens has already been mediated for them. And mm. it has been mediated for them first and foremost by translation. And so people have made choices about what the text does and does not say and how it does and does not say it. Uh, and then when we have those larger questions about is the text liberative or it's as liberative, is it constraining possibilities or are people being told possibilities are being constrained? Some of that is not even the text, but it's translation choices. Some of that's intentional. Um, and so paradigms are being set up uh, that are not gifts to the church. So uh, for people who may have come out of a holiness background, uh, Pentecostal background, and were told uh, women should not wear men's apparel because that's in the Bible, and so women can't wear, wear pants. Well, when I wrote on that section in Womanist Middle, one of the things I realized is the word clothing is not in there. It says women not, shall not use men's utensils and then everybody from the rabbis to contemporarily argues about what are utensils so some say that women shouldn't take right and jesus wore dresses right so then everybody just <laughs> wear a dress and call it a dress right and so uh, some say that women that meant that women should not take up arms for war really uh deborah was slicing and dicing judith was slicing and dicing and, and like there were no critiques about that but we don't even know what that means but like their whole denomination is founded on you going to hell if you wear a pair of pants if you are coded as a female person, then it's not even in there, right? Mm. Um, so the first engagement I would have for people is uh, to engage the text with sufficient wariness that accounts for uh, things that are translated for you. And for some of us, not really translated for us, right? Uh, it wasn't until the 20th century that we had Bibles uh, that moved from saying, um, She's black, but beautiful, beautiful in spite of being black because black and beautiful can't go together in the same rhetorical sentence unless there's an oppositional conjunction, right? We didn't get past that until the 20th century when it's a simple conjunction uh, there. So the first engagement is uh, understand that you are engaging scripture through a series of lenses even before you uh, deal with what reformer or what pastor 
or what biblical scholar has interpreted uh, in some way. Uh, the next engagement I would like for people to have is the ability to slow down and read the text word by word aloud and ask hmm. all the questions of what is present and what is missing. And, and there's a list of sort of starter questions in Womanist Midrash to start looking at who's there, who's not there, where's the power hmm. in the passage. And then to recognize that every reader, hearer, consumer of literature, arts, or any other media or construct engages with it. And in that engage engagement, changes it. So your perspectives are valid. That doesn't mean your perspectives are the ancient folk, but they are part of the interpreting conversation and you can hold them in that conversation as long as you do it you know, appropriately and cognizant of either the ancient context or cognizant of the fact that you don't know what the ancient context is. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can say, I see these contemporary circumstances here, even though it's an ancient text uh, and hold those things together. So those are some of the engagements that I hope people would have uh, with Womanist Midrash and its soon coming uh, sequel, uh, Womanist Midrash, The Prophets. Oh, can, can we have a, a, a little sneak peek of um, it, same lens, um, but dealing with the prophets or? Yes. With women. Uh, in the prophetic corpus of the Hebrew Bible. So that'll be Joshua Judges, Samuel Kings, and then uh, the people you more traditionally think of as prophets, except for Daniel, of course, because Daniel's not a prophet in the Hebrew Bible. Daniel's mm -hmm. in the miscellany in the writings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Wow. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. So um, in a second, I would we would love for you to kind of walk us through um, Judith, but I, I must admit that I had... I don't think I've ever read Judith. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe I did in my, I was a biblical studies major in undergrad. So maybe I did at that time, but I don't remember. So, so beforehand I grabbed my, the people's Bible and RSV because that's <laughs> where my apocrypha is. And I was going to, you know, just try to refresh in. And I saw that you were the one that did the intro for that. That's so, right. Of course, very fitting that you're helping me even before our conversation get familiar with Judith. But um, but can you uh, just walk us through um, and just help us think through kind of the liberative significance of the text that you um, chose? I'll start with the little uh, bit that I read and let me navigate back to that. So very much like the story I told you about reading uh, Elizabeth Shushla Fiorenza, uh, where she asked the question, but what about what Jesus said uh, in memory of her? We have this line of scripture and after this, I'm sure we're gonna talk about uh, why some of you all don't know that Judith is scripture uh, that says, uh, you are blessed by above all other women on earth and praise of you will never depart the hearts of women and men who remember the power of God. So we have this person with this extraordinary blessing uh, proclaimed on her life uh, who is to be remembered 
in our scriptures and uh, has been uh, hacked out of scripture uh, in the case of many folk. Um, so that's part of, ah, what did I do here? So that's part of what is uh, significant about Judith. And so this notion of uh, praise being heaped upon you from all time made that a suitable first lesson for um, the ever-blessed Virgin Mary. And this lesson comes mm. from the feast day of the Blessed Virgin, which we just uh, celebrated on August 15th. And so Judith is important uh, for a couple of reasons. One uh, is she has this blessing, uh, which is a form of blessed are you uh, above all women, which some of you may recognize from the story of the Blessed Virgin. And so when Elizabeth gives that blessing uh, to Mary, Elizabeth, whose name Elisheva, goes all the way back to the mother of all uh, priests, Aaron's wife, um, mm. knows her scripture. That blessing is found in the words of um, Deborah Yael, after Yael has also killed a man, and it's yep. said uh, to Yehudi, uh, Judith, after she has killed a man. In both of those contexts, uh, there was sexual violence on the table. Uh, Yael killed a man in uh, Judges 4 and 5 who was a known rapist. In fact, the story is set up in Judges that his mother's like, why are the boys not from battle? Oh, you know them. You know how to like to take those girls and do them. And the language there is rough and crude. The Hebrew uh, is, is pretty bad. Um, and then you have this, uh, the general Holofernes trying to seduce Judith and get her drunk. She gets him more drunk and hacks his head off. So we've got these two, these two stories. So when Elizabeth says, blessed are you uh, among women, um, there's a lot of depth and weight. That's a very bloody blessing. But Elizabeth Mary would have known that because they would have known her scriptures, including Judith, right? So, so that's why. Judith is also significant to me because of this um, prayer she prays in Judith chapter nine, uh, when her people are under siege and she recognizes that war um, is hell on women. This is one of the rare mm. acknowledgements in scripture of the effect of war on women in a woman's voice. So I'm just gonna read this piece yeah, from wow. Judith chapter nine, verse two. Oh Lord God of Mr. Simeon, to whom you gave a sword to take revenge on the strangers who had torn off a virgin's clothing to defile her and exposed her thighs to put her to shame and polluted her womb to disgrace her. For you said it should not be done, yet they did it. So you gave up their rulers to be killed and their bed, which was ashamed of the deceit they had practiced, stained with blood, and you struck down slaves along with princes and princes on their thrones. Uh, and she prays some more, she prays a long time, but she frames uh, her opposition to the war with, remember that time Dina was raped and you called for vengeance. You were the God who says, men should not treat women that way. And I'm reminding you that you are that God. So 11 verses later, she says, this is my favorite, uh, liberation theology in the Hebrew Bible, although uh, we should probably say in the First Testament, because these are Greek texts. 
For your strength does not depend on numbers, nor your might on the powerful, but you are the God of the lowly, helper of the oppressed, upholder of the weak, protector of the forsaken, savior of those without hope. Um, this prayer is also one of the longest prayers uh, by a woman in scripture. Now, um, why don't some of you all uh, know about Judith? In short, uh, because uh, pro-life Protestants aborted the Bible. Pro-life Protestants aborted the Bible. When when Jews were in in Egypt and they recalled their sacred story and put their canon together, they put together a longer canon than Jews did in Babylon. So we have two first testaments. The church adopted the Greek Testament, which is the longer one. And when the church adopted the Greek Testament and then had a two testament Bible, books in the Bible ranged from 80 to 84. That included New Testament works like the uh, Epistle of Barnabas, the Epistle of Clement, the Shepherd of Hamas. It took a while to sort them out. but once it was sorted, it was 80, and it was always 80. Um, the oldest uh, manuscripts, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, right down through the Gutenberg Bible to Luther's Bible, even as Luther railed about James and he railed about 4th Maccabees, he didn't take them out. They were scripture. Right. Those right. books have always been in the Bible. The King James is an Anglican Bible. That means it has all the books because Anglicans read all the books, right? Mm. Now, In the American Revolution, uh, the colonizers, who thought they were colonists, realized they didn't have enough Bibles. And because in the former arrangement, the king was the head of the church, and in order to get a Bible printed, you had to go through him. And if you didn't, you'd have the experience of James Tyndall of being, you know, um, abducted, strangled, hung, quartered, and murdered. Um, because they were very serious that people could not just print Bibles, the colonizers said, well, we can't exactly ask the king for Bibles because we're shooting at him. Who's the head of our church? We haven't figured that out. Let's ask the Continental Congress. And so for the first and only time in what would be United States history, a Bible was printed on the authority of a Congress. And so there's a Bible called the Aiken Bible, which was published by the Aiken uh, publishers in Philadelphia, and there's actually uh, one of them in the library at LTSP or whatever its new name is. Um, mm-hmm. It's worth about five grand, um, and that is the first English Bible that was shortened, seventeen eighty two. Now wow. think about how many Protestants think the sixty six book Bible goes back to Jesus. Never mind that they mm-hmm. think he spoke English, right? Now, so Americans, being what we are, contrary. The very next Bible published in English had 80 books. And so that's really the American tradition is that we have long and short Bibles. Now, who uses the long Bibles? The majority of Christians on the planet, by themselves, Catholics are 1 billion. So they're already the majority. Add the Orthodox, add the Anglicans, add the Episcopalians. The majority of Christians on the planet use and have always used an 80 book Bible. Protestants are loud, but they're not old. Right. Mm. And they tend to be ignorant of the contours of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's such important history. And no, I I guess I I don't think I knew that it was I would have I knew it was a Protestant thing. I didn't, I thought it would have been in the 16th century, but I guess I was a little mm-hmm. off in no. terms of the time. So it was see, even later than that. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I mean Luther railed about stuff, but he didn't take it out. And when Luther did uh, when the Luther Bible was being constructed and he had a hand in choosing the woodcut images that were illuminate things for the Ten Commandments, huh. uh, for the commandment on adultery, he chose Susanna, right? Mm, yeah. Um, so mm. there, there just simply is no, in the in the Western English tra- tradition. Now, there might have been, and, and I don't even know that there was one among a German uh, reformer or older. I, I just simply don't know of one. But that is our American language. So. American mm. story. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Um, and then, oh, go ahead, Jared. No, I, I was actually, um, Dr. Yaffe, if it's not too personal, um, can, can I ask about um, uh, you finding a home um, in Episcopalianism? Um, uh, forgive me if that's not, not the right... Um, uh, in Australia, the um, Anglican communion is expressed as Anglicanism. Um, right. uh, but yeah. uh, well, I'm we're, we're part of the we're part of the Anglican communion, and I consider uh-huh. myself uh, Anglican uh, as much as Episcopal. It's, it's you know the, the tradition. So I will start that uh, because I was baptized AME. Uh, there is mm. the Roman Catholics say this. You know, if you get a child uh, for the first five years, you, you've got them. Um, Once Catholic, and, always Catholic. Uh huh. So I was very shaped by, by the content of that liturgy. It was uh, very much a uh, Black church, uh, passionate, spirit-filled, uh, but there's, there's a liturgy. The, the service goes in a certain way for a certain reason. Uh, and uh, the table, the communion table mm-hmm. is, is sacred and, and it matters how we interact with it. And that's certainly true in, in other places, but this... Um, this particular uh, way of doing it really, really settled in my bones. And then mm. after college, I was puttering around looking for churches. I, actually, I was not puttering around looking for churches. My mother was calling me, telling me to go to churches. Um, <laughs> and uh, I went to a sorority breakfast with her and heard a guy preach. was like, oh, I go to his church. And, and that turned out to be an AME Zion church. And I found myself back in the very similar liturgy. Honestly, the difference between the two liturgies was uh, uh, AME, let me see if I got this right, had scripture before prayer, before the sermon, and we had prayer before the scripture, before the sermon. It's like that one little flip, mm. but very familiar. And as I grew in my own devotion and my own theology of the table and my own uh, devotion for the Blessed Mother, I realized that there was room for me in Zion, but not room for me to expand the way I wanted to expand. Um, and there were conversations who were more on my page. So when I, when I started to, to think these things, a couple of things happened that pushed my discernment really forward. Without conversation with me, Dean Willie Jennings, who was uh, Dean mm. of the School at Duke when I was doing my PhD, assigned me to be TA to Black Anglicans and Catholics. I like Willie. 
I'm supposed to be teaching the Hebrew Bible courses. Oh, I need you in that. Oh, no, this, well, get the books early and read. I'm like, okay, this is a plan. So here I am now immersed into uh, Black traditions of Anglicanism and Catholicism. Okay, and I have a Catholic stripe because I went to Catholic high school. And so that, and I had a good experience with that. Love the Latin mass. I uh, went Christmas Eve for many, many years. And now I have my, my own uh, midnight masses as an Episcopalian. And then uh, the local bishop uh, in North Carolina in the Episcopal church came over and did whatever our black church studies uh, lecture and preach. And he was a little fireball by the name of Michael Curry. He was bishop <laughs> in North Carolina at the time. And then we hung out. And one of my seminary professors was Kelly Brown Douglas. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was pretty much convinced I was going to be a theologian because of her. So all of these things came together. And I'm serving as pastor of a church. I do not do graduate school the way I did it. I was an Army Reserve chaplain. I was a civilian pastor. I was teaching Hebrew at UNC. I was TA in Hebrew at Duke. And I was teaching feminist biblical studies at, Gil at Guilford. Like, don't do all of that. But... Um, my congregation knew that I was going to get my degree and then go on and take a job somewhere so I would not be continuing with them. And so it was set up like that. So there was no sort of leave taking or abandonment in a, in a negative way. They were, you know, sending me on my way. And so suddenly it became, am I going to transfer to the appropriate conference in the AME Zion Church? Or am I going to move into the Episcopal Church? And I had begun visiting the Episcopal Church where Bishop Curry preached because the church I pastored only met two Sundays. And when I moved to Philadelphia, the rector sent me with a letter that said, well, you know, you came and visited with us regularly and that counts for sort of your year of, they don't call it a year of citizenship, but uh, it facilitated me transferring um, and then the ordination path was laid out. And so, uh, this is a little snotty that the the bishop at the time in Philadelphia uh, did, really didn't believe in people who weren't cradle Episcopalians, and he had never brought anybody in from outside of the church uh, uh, in as clergy, but uh, there was uh, the right Reverend Fred Borsch, now saying it, who just went to him and said, you need to gain will, and he was just like not having any other conversation, which is probably the only reason that man ordained me. Um, but he, but by doing so, he disrespected my other ordinations and didn't even accept that I had a, a valid deacon's ordination. So that meant he double ordained me. So I've been ordained four times, deacon, elder, deacon, priest, and all of that was not necessary. But, um, uh, you know, I found a home, particularly in Philadelphia, in the uh, African Episcopal Church of St. Thomas, which is the first Episcopal church founded by and for enslaved persons in this country, enslaved and free black persons from 1792. Not the original building, not the original property, but a continuous congregation. And so the, the fusion of, uh, of uh, Afro-Catholic liturgy uh, and Episcopal traditions it, it was my sweet spot. And so wow. I, do, I really flourished there. That's yeah, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, since living in Philly, I'm in Harrisburg now, and I imagine you would be familiar with Bishop Nathan Baxter. Sure. Yeah, and so I've gotten, I think I've preached over at um, St. Paul's Episcopal, and I've gotten really the first time connecting with like 
black Episcopalians and getting to get familiar with that tradition and um and been really enjoying um working with him he's um on our we have a, a program called thriving together congregations for racial justice and he's kind of helping to serve to oversee that process and it's been really good kind of getting to know him but um, but yeah the episcopal tradition is on one hand both it's always been around but I, it was definitely it and even the times that i have preached in episcopal churches I'm so conscious that I don't have it in my bones. And so not knowing what to do and kind of learning. On one hand, I see it as so beautiful and rich. And also um, I feel just uncomfortable at times, right? Um, because of my own tradition and how I was raised. But um, but I'm learning to uh, engage and learn from that tradition as well. Yeah. Still be inviting you to be yourself. But yeah. uh, since you're you know, obviously it's not quite a day's drive. You should definitely go down and go to St. Thomas if you've not. Yeah. You need yeah. to have that experience. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm putting that on my list. <laughs> yeah. So for, other, you know, other Episcopal churches are out in an hour and, you know, we're out in two hours and uh, Martini is the name of the rector, you know, and he'll open the doors of the church. I will never forget we had this uh, youth group from a white Episcopal church because their youth and our youth were doing service projects, you know, all the things. And when the rector said the doors of the church are now open, all the little white children turned around and looked at the back of the church. Like they never heard that expression. <laughs> like, like they're, they're Literally like, open. They were, they were God's frozen chosen Episcopalians. And you know, you know, we have a gospel choir that they won't quite fallout but there's definitely hallelujah you know that we definitely yeah. get some, like mild episcopal shouting <laughs> you know but more shouting than you've ever heard you know it's a it's a talk back while you preach congregation yeah yeah so yeah. it's just not like um and things like the liturgy um when we sing uh the confession of uh, faith uh uh christ has died christ has risen christ will come again we sing it to the tune of we shall overcome so like the mm. whole liturgy is just funked up, right? Mm. Yeah, wow. That's beautiful. Yep. Um, my, my first ever experience of um, AME, uh, at the time I was um, a pastor in a Pentecostal denomination here in Australia um, and, and visiting um, in, in the US. And it brought together so many things um, for me um, uh, that um, I'd long to see together. Um, uh, my dad was a brother in a Catholic order. He, he was a monk. And um, uh, to, to find such sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and yet a, a liturgy that um, was so um, grounded and considered um, and to have um, the Eucharist as centre. And I, I wept seeing people come forward and kneel um, uh, while others um, uh, were literally in, in the aisles dancing. And I'd never... I'd never seen those things come together in such a, a powerful way. So I really do appreciate you sharing your journey to um, Episcopalianism and, and how that has provided a, a container for the things that mean so much for you as well. This has been an incredible joy. And Dr. Gaffney, we would love to have you back uh, anytime you want to come back, but particularly your, your book on the prophets. Uh, I'm just so excited about um, uh, this kind of starts to um, close out our time uh, for the 
podcast proper. Uh, as a priest, I was wondering if you would um, feel comfortable actually praying for our listeners. We're very aware that while this is an um, intellectual engagement, um, that it also um, uh, it, it, it draws together and, and links together so many um, things in people's lives where people are hurting and, and seeking a faith that it does actually liberate. Um, would you feel comfortable um, praying us out for this last little bit before we go to our Q&A? Sure. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. All right. Let us settle ourselves. Ever-living, ever-loving God, we give you thanks for this day, acknowledging its challenges and its complexities. We are grateful for your presence with us and trust in that presence determinedly because we cannot always see or hear or feel it. We trust that you are with the broken, the hurting, the abandoned. We trust that you are with us and we pray that we may live in such a way that we might be the vessels through which you are present in this world. And may the God who is the restorer of broken hearts, minds and bodies, accompany all of you through the gaps and brokenness in your life, nurture, sustain and transform you to change the world around you, amen. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.